Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by Dan Rogers, CEO of Point to Point Transportation and founder and CEO of Sales Sidekick. Dan never expected to go from rolling burritos to becoming the CEO of his own company. He always looks to challenge the status quo, and in doing so, he helped to grow a quick serve restaurant chain, tripled annual sales for a transportation business, and then bought and pivoted that same company to navigate tremendous growth. Prior to the pandemic, Point to Point had been listed for seven consecutive years on the Inc. 5000. Dan is also committed to advising companies on how to be a sales sidekick, cultivating value for both their clients and employees. Dan's passion is coaching individuals so that they can clarify their vision, construct a plan, overcome obstacles, and reach their goals. In the Sales Sidekick Bootcamp, he shares the strategies and tools individuals can use to achieve those goals. This was a great conversation. We wound up spending a lot of time talking about sales and business growth. Dan talks about the difference between being a sidekick salesperson versus being a hero salesperson. He talks about how to give more than you take and really how to build a company that grows itself. This was a a fascinating conversation. I learned a ton that I'm going to take back to the work that I do. And I think you'll enjoy this one. And I think you'll take a lot away from it as well. Here is Dan Rogers. And we are live. Dan, welcome to the show. Looking forward to the conversation today. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you having me. Looking forward to it. Want to start at the beginning and do some setup. I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation here from your perspective on business leadership. How did you come to be the owner and CEO of Point-to-Point Transportation? What's your origin story there? Yeah, so the shortest origin story would be I was a commissioned salesperson who got to the place where the hardest part of the sale was closing the owner to do the things that the customer had already agreed us uh, had already agreed to pay us to do. And so he was a, he was a great guy. He still is a great guy, very ethical guy, but we just just sort of had our long-term visions were not in alignment. And so I uh, sat down with him and said, I value equity. I value the contribution you've made in my success, but I want your chair. And I don't (laughs) think, you know, I don't think I have to head the king to get it. And so I paid a little more than I wanted to, and he took a little less than he wanted. And we essentially, he had four agencies at the time. I bought the agency that I worked for. And so we got the email addresses and the cell phone numbers and um, the seven customer service people that were supporting me at the time and just a bunch of goodwill and a, a guy rooting for us on day one. So that was that's how we did it. Did I read correctly that you were even a driver for the company before that? Yeah. So I started off as a furniture mover in the Mayflower van line system. And so I worked for a local moving agency doing local household moves and 
office moves in the greater Seattle area. And then I was attempting to try to get out of uh, university. I have more time in, in school than I do credits, and I have more credits than I do degrees, but never actually graduated. But as I was trying to get out of university, I had to stop moving furniture just to accommodate my school schedule. And I took a job rolling burritos at a small little fast food chain and ended up dropping out of university to roll burritos. And, and then eventually the moving company recruited me back to get to join him as a salesperson. Okay. And what was the move into sales like? Because you hadn't had any sales experience before that, right? So what prompted them to invite you back and for you to jump into sales? Yeah. So the sort of shortest version of the story is, is that prior to leaving there, one of the things that I was decent at, like on a couple really large office moves, just by coincidence, one time a salesperson was late, I ended up having to talk to like VPs, two regional vice presidents of Hyatt. We were doing a a new hotel installation and I didn't certainly knock their socks off, but it went well enough and they were nice. They made some comments that got back to ownership. I actually got back to the salesperson. And so they had sort of slotted me for a guy that could talk to the customer. And so it wasn't really officially on the agenda. It was just, I started doing all of his office moves. And that's how I saw it. They told me later that they had sort of targeted me for sales, but they wanted me to graduate first. They knew, I mean, I was taking night classes at the time. So I was moving furniture during the day and taking night classes. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's funny just the ability to talk to people. If you are somebody who can talk to people, you take it for granted, but you know, not everybody's comfortable stepping in, especially talking to power, right? To somebody that you perceive as powerful or having some sway or influence in another organization, like that can be intimidating for a lot of people. Where did you develop a comfort with that? Is that something that's been innate? Did you pick that up from somewhere along the way? Well, full disclosure, some of it's probably just delusional brazen arrogance. Like there's, <laughs> I got plenty of that. So that's probably- the It goes a long part. way too. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, I've been fortunate, been on a couple of podcasts recently and a little bit of that story has come up. I've never actually sort of put this together until you asked the question, but not to go into the nitty gritty details of the conversation with those in the hotel. But what I did do at the time is I just asked them a bunch of questions about what they were hoping to get accomplished. And so I think- for whatever reason, I'm wired in a way to try to get to understand sort of what moves other people. And I think that's a really effective way. I mean, there isn't anybody I've met that doesn't like to talk about themselves. They might, some are more reluctant, but once they realize that you're genuinely interested and you're trustworthy, like people, like who doesn't want to talk about themselves? So yeah, I think that's, that part is innate. I am genuinely curious and yeah, no, I think it's super cool. I think I haven't met anybody that doesn't have a really cool story. Yeah. And your first point, that kind of naivete goes a long way too. You know, oh, you can hundred percent. Yeah. I had, you can I mean, get I, yourself <laughs> into a lot of interesting situations just based on obliviousness that you weren't supposed to be there in the first place. Yeah. Thank you. There was at that point and there still is today brazen arrogance for sure. But there also was, I mean, I certainly understood that they were important, but I did not even begin to feel the wet the weight and depth of who they were. I mean, they were important, but I didn't take them any more or less seriously than I did, you know, somebody who we were moving across town in Seattle. I mean, they were just another customer that I had to talk to, right? So if I had rolled in on your parents to move them across town, I would have treated them the same way I would have treated your father moving his furniture across town as I did the two high VPs. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's a good point. I think, because I've never really had trouble either 
talking to those types of people, you know, every once in a while you get somebody who you maybe look up to and that can be a little intimidating, but I, I have found that kind of easy too. And I think when you just said that, that sort of clicked something in my head is like, if you treat everybody with respect, like when you get somebody that you then have to respect because of position or title or whatever, it's not intimidating because you're just authentically respectful all the time. And so it goes to like what The Rock says, I think kindness is free. You yeah. know, it's, it doesn't cost anything to be nice. Yeah. That goes a long way. If you just treat everybody with respect, then kind of brings the intimidation factor down. Yeah. I'm going to confirm what the smart listeners already know and bring the other ones up to speed. So in our conversations, O'Brien is a nice guy and he's definitely respectful. <laughs> I'm sort of nice. I actually just want people to like me more than I'm nice. Right? So I think O'Brien is, is yeah, I can learn more from you, but even if it isn't for the most altruistic reasons, but it is genuine, right? Like I, mean, I want people to like me and I want them to like me for real. And I, so it's not the, maybe the purest of, of motives, but it's a little cleaner for sure. So actually, you know, it's funny you said, cause I was thinking about that today, having a conversation with somebody too. And like, I do sales for a living. That's, that's how I pay the bills. And there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance, right? And there's also a fine line between being interested in somebody and having it come off as being inauthentic. And so I was thinking about that today. And I think people hesitate a lot. If you're in a sales position or you're, you feel like you want something from somebody, there can be this hesitancy that you can't be your full confident self or that you can't, you know, that it might come off as inauthentic. But I think I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think you can be fully confident. And as long as you are trying to do the best by everybody in the situation, I think you're okay. Like as long as you don't need something from the other person, and as long as you are genuinely trying to help and you think that whatever you're selling can help, then you can be confident and mm -hmm. you can be curious about them and you can ask questions about them and it, it doesn't come off as insincere. Yeah, we didn't have salespeople at point to point and but our customer facing folks and even operational folks but but I I very rarely was I responsible for the provider facing folks I was usually responsible for the uh, customer facing folks so I would just say when all else fails tell tell them exactly what you're thinking just be honest like people can smell honesty and even even if you're quote unquote a pushy salesperson if you're honest that will that will carry the day way better right and I will definitely try to find things that I like about people, but I refuse to give false compliments. Like I just won't. And then that way yeah. it's like, hey, it may, or I might sound like a schmoozer. I might like whatever, but like, I know that I can get, I can be pretty focused and pretty intense. So I try to make it a habit to try to find things that I like about people or situations just to sort of keep my mind in the right place. But, but I definitely, I refuse to sort of give false ones. And then that yeah. way it's at least, at least I know for myself, it's like, hey, well, they're entitled to read it however they want, but like. I mean it. So that's it's that's authentic enough. for you. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Do you have any examples when you talk about just tell them how you're feeling? Like, do you have any examples of where people might have felt uncomfortable telling somebody how they felt, but in reality it was the the right way to go? Yeah. So there's a, a super colorful story that just pops up. So there was a woman that worked for us for 16 plus years. We had to let her go in the whole COVID thing, but so she and I worked very closely together. She was in front of customers. She's doing a fantastic job, but that's a high, it's not just high growth in terms of money. Like if you're going to get out in front and try to serve people authentically, like you better sign up for the self-development program because it's going to develop you. If you're going to have any <laughs> success, the only way to succeed is that you're going to be a bigger, more responsible, more authentic person as you show up. 
So she she had fully embraced that that growth curve. It was fantastic. But as you do that, that's that I mean, that's difficult and quote unquote mistakes were made and all that. And so we were reviewing a meeting that she had, and it was not bad, but of course she's a highly competitive person. And, you know, and so I was just, and I'm not going to use her name, but it's just like, look, call her up and just say, look, I was reviewing our call and this is what I was thinking. And she's either going to accept that or not. But like when all this fails, just tell her exactly. Like you can just, and you can even say I was talking to my knucklehead boss or like whatever, but just, just tell them the truth. Like I mean, it's, we don't need a story when you're coming from an authentic place. The story is the story. Like we don't have to have one and it's way yeah. simpler. I mean, I'm not stupid. I'm not going to go there. Like I have a, a brain, a functioning brain in my head, but it's, I've met truly brilliant people, PhDs, brilliant, brilliant, crazy, crazy, brilliant people. I haven't met anyone that's better with multiple versions of reality than it's better with a single version of reality. Like, it's just easier yeah. for all of us. Smart people can play it a little bit better, but like the effective play is one version of reality. Just tell them the truth. Like, yeah, yeah, it's way easier, way easier. I had a team member, this happened earlier this week. I had a team member who a client asked for something that was outside of our scope. We don't want to do it for legal reasons. We don't want to do it. So I sort of coached her on how to go back and say respectfully, no, we can't do that. And then we had another request to add even more work on and have our next meeting sooner. And she just like didn't have enough time. There wasn't going to be enough time to get it all done. And she was freaking out because she didn't want to go back and say no again because she felt like it wasn't going to be, that wasn't good service. And all of their exchange up until this point had happened via email. Mm -hmm. And my suggestion back to her was just call her and tell her that you're uncomfortable you're uncomfortable saying no, but in reality, here's why you think you can't do it. And they had a great call and she was like, oh yeah, she totally understood. We're going to do it on this date and I'm going to do it this way. And they were able to work it out. And what would have been a no in the email turned into a, a collaborative service experience that actually adds value and, and re- builds respect with the client. And all she had to do was tell her how she was really feeling. Yeah, I consume business books and books like all of us do. And a lot of it's audio, you know, 2X or whatever. But the back before all that was readily available and you had to read them for real, I seen, it seemed like, or maybe it was just what I was reading, but I used to see this reference all the time. I haven't seen it probably in about what seems like 10 years, but in terms of when they break down the what makes 100% communication. And if you go to written form at the time, I never saw anything that was more than 12.5%. And some, it was anywhere from like seven and a half to 12 and a half percent because there's no body language. There's no tone of voice. There's, you can't see how it lands. So at least on the phone, you can hear their tone of voice. They can hear your tone of voice. You have no idea if they're looking at you or paying attention or anything. So it's not a hundred, but it's just ineffective. And I think yeah. I'm not a hater on tech. I mean, there's, there's been years at point to point where we spent seven digits tech. I'm a tech fan. Like I'm not an idiot, but it's not always effective right? Like it's incredibly efficient, but efficiency doesn't equal effectiveness and communication. Like you're just leaving so much on the table if you can't have, I mean, and that's the cool thing about what's happened at one of the, the, I think the upsides to COVID is all this video, you know, we're seeing each other. (laughs) Like, you know, there used to be all these, we were all on conference calls of one version or another before the coronavirus, but no one ever saw anybody. Right. And so like everyone's just now, now we know when you're doing email and not paying attention on the conference call. So yeah. 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 Well, that's a good point too, that it seems like the more 
there could be misinterpretation or conflict in a communication or interaction, the more you need to err towards being able to actually see and hear the person. So if you're just like, you're just transacting and moving information and things are running smoothly, you know, moving towards written communication is great. But as if you get to those points where you have to really collaborate, something could go wrong, there's a decision to be made, there's a potential conflict that needs to be worked through, that's better done person to person. Yeah, this is probably a little old school on my part. And it certainly sort of predates all of this being on Teams or Zoom or whatever. But but I was a big fan of like, let's have a phone call and I'll send out the meeting recap afterwards. Like, it's just not effective. I mean, I've done some nonprofit stuff and even some business stuff, but I just, you just sort of take it as part of the course of doing business. But certainly on the nonprofit side, where we'd have a, a board meeting and like, then the meeting would happen. And then there would be this email that would say it was a monthly board meeting. And in between the board meetings, there was like this other completely ineffective board meeting that happened on email. And two thirds of the committee wasn't on email because they thought they were serving on a board that met once a month. Right. (laughs) And then the other people that it's just, it's a miracle. It is a miracle. Email is amazing. The tech is amazing, but it doesn't always make it effective. Right. Like it's great for an information push. It's a great for archive. It's great for all that, but I I don't, the, the, the video and live interacting is, is, uh, I think wildly different. I think email is closer to messaging than it is communication. Yeah. yeah. So I want to go back to something else that you slipped in there, which is that if you do sales and service the right way, it will develop you. Yeah. Can you talk to that a little bit more? I have been saying that for a long time and could not agree more, but I, I, I don't want to hear my thoughts. I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So, and I, I reserve the right to learn more in this conversation, than anyone else. So if you've got additional thoughts, I'm interested for sure. So this has been my experience is when I first got into sales, I didn't get any official training, which I, I couldn't be more thankful for. Thank God they didn't give me any because there's so little good training out there. But And I think there's just such a misconception about what it is, but that's a whole other animal. But long story short is what became really obvious to me in very short order was my job was actually not to close them but to help them figure out what it is they wanted. And when you're doing that, you have to put yourself in their shoes. In order to do that, you have to be super comfortable with yourself. You just you have to sort of be able to suspend yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's a second to second process for me. And it's not a destination. It's, it's an ongoing journey for me for sure. But in order to do that, like I have to know myself in order to think about you. If I don't know myself, Hopefully, (laughs) then I'm I'm continuously thinking about myself, right? And so to find what my triggers are or whatever that is. I mean, it's like, well, what pulled me out from serving them? It's some defect of mine or some defect is a strong word, maybe, but there was some something that happened. Some scarcity or some some, fear or something. Yeah. 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 So so it's just facing that. And then the other part of it is, and this part I think is that this is part of what I think is so pure about sales is it is so absolutely cut and dry. Like so much of business isn't like sport where you can't really keep score and there's not a great scoreboard, but like sales is. And so I at first was fairly focused on numbers, even though I wasn't a super hard close guy, I still wanted to achieve the goals I set. And then I really became more about, no, I'm going to focus on just the stuff that I can control. And that's doing the actions and then how I conduct myself inside of that. And so 
anyone that ever that I ever worked with, anytime we did any customer interaction, they knew exactly what was going to happen as soon as we ended up ended the call or whatever it was, which is constructive review. And they better have something that we could have done better. Because if it's just, we were wonderful, come on, man. Like that's, it doesn't matter. They could have just signed the contract and we could have, like, we could all be on our way to Tahiti. That's not the point. That's not, we'll, we'll talk about that. But what right now afterwards, what could we do better sitting here right now? Where did we get too caught up in how special we were? Where did we lose sight of them? Like, where did they some say something that we didn't hear? Or what did you hear that I didn't respond to or vice versa or whatever? So, yeah. Yeah. I did one of these interviews with a gentleman named Mike Sorelli, mm-hmm. who was a 20-year veteran of the Marines and then the Navy. He was a Navy SEAL for, I think, 12 or 14 of those years. And he was talking about just the, the importance of the after-action report mm-hmm. and how you know it didn't matter how long they'd been out at night, yep. how grueling the gunfight how beat up and dusty they were or how hungry they were. It was just like, that was the first thing that they would do walk through that after, after action report, even if it took two hours to walk through the whole thing. Cause it mm-hmm. was so important to learn every single time, even from the wind. Yeah. And I, I think something that I've seen recently. So with our clients, they know that we record everything. It's just on the table. We remind them from time to time, but we record all the calls and we've gotten a little loose. Like I've gotten loose, like uh, on the point to point days, like it would be construct review religious, no matter what. And we didn't record any of it. And with the recordings, there's been time either where we stack the meetings back to back or for whatever reason, it was late in the day where we weren't doing the construct reviews um, right after. And even with the recording of the call, the review isn't the same. Like it's way better. Like it's way better to have a recording than just to try to do it. I mean, if you do it by memory a day later, it's garbage as far as, I mean, every once in a bloom and you'll pull something, but not compared to, I've been fortunate to work with people who were different than me that had wildly different skills than me that heard things that like, I was like, oh God, now that you say it, it sounds totally different than when they said it or whatever. So, so I just think there's something there when in the moment, you know, when it's still fresh to be able to review, that's just when there's the most opportunity to learn. And I actually think reviewing the wins are by far the best to do. I mean, review the losses for sure, but you're going to do those anyways. Like that's usually pretty obvious to fix. It's super easy to get super intoxicated with yourself if you're just putting up W's. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, as a salesperson or somebody who leads salespeople, how do you expect people to be using their time when it comes to prospecting the actual meetings and the reviews? Because I mean, I know just from my own day to day, like there's a pressure as a salesperson to be out doing things all the time. And so when you're done with one meeting, you're moving on to the next thing, you're making the calls, you're, you got another meeting back to back, right? To take the time to actually go through and sit and listen to a whole recording. I mean, it's twice the amount of time, right? That the meeting took. So is that like, you're just like, yeah, no, that's how it is. Like you should be doing half the work better you should be doing half the work twice as well versus doing twice the work poorly. Is that sort of what, is that your philosophy or how do you think about that? So I would say the short answer is yes, in terms of philosophy. Like I absolutely agree that I have a firm, firm belief that the overwhelming majority of sales efforts is just a ridiculous waste of time. Because if we start from a flawed premise and then we build on top of it, as we get further out, it just gets larger degrees of magnitude of cluster F. Like it doesn't get better. Like you don't fix it. Like you you don't overcome it. And so at point to point, we didn't have salespeople. 
who didn't have them. We added a customer a week for six and a half years. We were on the Inc. 5000 seven years in a row without salespeople. We had customers and we had clients. Customers were people that we could onboard with little or no pain and suffering. And they asked to do business with us. And we said, thank you. And if they came, they came. If they left, they left. We might've added one a week. We might've lost 40 a week. We didn't count. We counted them when we added them. We didn't count them. If, if they never called us again, you know, every once in a blue moon, we'd, we'd run a report to see who was there. But we actually designed and built and ran the company for the clients. And so how we approached it is we didn't have salespeople. We had people that led projects. We had people that were in supervisory positions. And when we had a customer who we could service with little or no uh, effort, I mean, you know, any real effort, when they had a triggering event, and for us, that was a dollar amount in a year, or in, because we were a corporate event shipping company, if they had an event in their company, if they went to an event with their company name in it, then we would take a look at it. If there was something there, we would send one of those project coordinators to go do potentially lower level account management work to prospect them, not in a covert way, but just to see, hey, what's here, right? So we sort yeah. of over-serviced the customer's business and saw, is there a fit? Is there a mindset here that they actually want what we do? And is there something there? And if that actually happened, then from that position of credibility, because they just worked with them on that project, then they said, hey, can we talk to you about this? And then there's a whole conversation. And how I would like to define sales is we've done the work as a company and as a team that we've got a good enough idea of the marketplace that we serve and the people inside of it, that we can guide them through a conversation that allows them to make their own informed decision about a particular worldview. And if they say yes to our worldview, then we can work together. If they say no, then we've put them in a place where they know exactly where to go get what they're looking for. And that's not sales. That's not even close to sales. That's just, that's process. And so one of the best examples I have is we, in the Seattle area, there it's been a, been a little, you know, it was about a year or so before COVID, but a very hot local Seattle company. And we quote unquote, closed them as a client. And um, the woman that closed them had been with us for, at that point, I think about five years, but prior to coming point to point, she was a paralegal and she was a phenomenal project coordinator. <laughs> and that was the quote unquote salesperson that closed one of the hottest companies in Seattle. Like, and it's not, it's not a close. They were a customer, right? And then she serviced their work as a customer, like as an account manager. And then when it looked like it was an opportunity for us to potentially explore a deeper engagement with them, she asked them, they said, yes, there was a conversation, multiple conversations. And at the end of it, then they got moved over to the client list. But that's not, that's not sales. That's not sales. Let me yeah. ask you this though. Yeah. Why is that not sales? It's Because I've heard you say like, I'm not a salesperson. I don't do sales. Like, I'm a, so I'm yeah, just curious yeah. how you define it. Yeah. So when the company itself is driving enough value that customers essentially come and sign up by themselves, that's not sales. When you're converting customers into clients, that's not sales. If you've got to go crack skulls and dial for dollars and do all that other stuff that people have to do, sure, that's sales. Absolutely. And I did a little bit of that. I did about six months of cold calling when I got started, but we got smart. <laughs> like it's just way easier to contribute so much value that people want to work with you. And because I was fortunate enough to be the guy in charge of the company, I 
did, and we certainly didn't do it perfectly. And we certainly didn't do it without lots of setbacks and changing our mind and, and trying things and doing all that. But eventually we got to a place where we had organized a company that could service customers with little or no lift that we could essentially prospect to see if they wanted to be a client that we would run and design our company for. And that's how we did it. Yeah. You could the, do that as a salesperson inside somebody else's business. Like, I mean, that's more yeah. than possible. It's essentially what I did to the guy that I was working for when I bought the agency is I just started designing stuff. He was okay with the numbers. And then I got to a place where I was like, hey, this, this doesn't make any sense. So let's just go do our own thing. But that's essentially what I did is we created enough value. And then I started adding additional value and we sold it. I mean, we quote unquote sold it for money. They paid us for it. But it, that was all the rub that he and I had. He kept saying, Dan, we're doing all this work that it isn't there. It's, it's their job. And I said, A, they're willing to pay us for it. And B, it puts us in a better position with them, right? So anyways, it's, I'm, a little, I'm a little off topic there, but that's... No, no, no. You're right on because I want to dive into that. So because the way you define like customers and clients, I think I've got my mind around it now, but that's just not something that you hear people... We don't pe- hear people talk like that a lot. You, hear, you think of them as the same thing. So I'm curious one, like what you built for the customer versus the client? Like, was it, was the work built for the clients, the the deeper complex work, and you built something different for a customer? Or were, was there just this pile of companies coming to you yeah. for like minimal work? Like, did it exist already or did you build it? Yeah. So we love both of them because they send us money and that's super cool. Willingly send us money. <laughs> <laughs> so that's awesome. Like, it's not, it's not, and, and look, a lot of people just wanted to, they, I can't stress this enough. Like, I don't want to come across like we were so cool. Like the people, the companies that were treating us, they wanted us to be a vendor. They didn't want us to be somebody that was going to integrate their systems. You know, they're like, look, man, we just need a knucklehead shipping company. Get my stuff there on time, damage free. And that's enough. So it was a highly specialized, uh, it is a highly specialized shipping play. We ship corporate events and trade shows. That's all we ship. Pre-COVID was 10,000 events on, on five continents. So, I mean, there's a lot of stuff moving around. But for the people that wanted a deeper engagement, we can fix things on an event scale that the industry that we served for 20 years had sort of just come to accept. And we started fixing it for a handful of clients. And those clients have a lot of visibility and they have other companies that host events, attend their events, and they're like, wow, we saw what you did for XYZ. Can we get some of that? Right. I mean, it's it's that sort of thing. So I think the short answer is we had sort of an off-the-shelf offering that was very easy for not only for us to deliver on, but for the marketplace to understand. And then we had several layers above that of stuff that really quite frankly had nothing to do with shipping at all. Um, I mean, shipping was sort of just got us access to the information to fix some of these things that then allowed us to do really great work for him. And so, I mean, I, I know just enough to know that I need somebody like you <laughs> in my life. That's how much I know about your business. But, but I mean, I think, you know, similar would be, you know, like a banking service versus full on planning like you would do. Right. Like, I mean, yeah, super easy for me to engage with the bank every once in a blue moon. I deposit enough money. You're like, Hey, we should go talk to Dan, see what's all, let's see what's there. Right. I mean, that's, it's that simple. And it sounds like I can't stress enough. Everything that we did at PDP, everything that we're trying to do is sales sidekick. If I have a superpower, I just see gold and then do my best to replicate it. I haven't figured anything out. I don't have any new silver bullets. It's actually just going back to the basics that we know work and then continuing to do it, 
right? Like this is yeah. all stuff that when we, as the company grows, we just lose sight of, and then we just stop doing it. And then we start trying to fix symptoms instead of getting back to the core, the cause, the core cause. And so what in Europe, how do you define the core cause? So I think the core cause really has to be is that we have to be on the plus side of giving more than we take out. And I mean, in a super, super big way, like overwhelmingly plus. And I, some of these, you know, trillion dollar market cap companies are our best customers and clients and we love them. And I'm not trying to talk bad about them, but if you have a a trillion or a 2 trillion market cap, what is the level of contribution you need to make to the marketplace to warrant being at that value? I'm not saying these companies don't do great things. They're not giving it that value. They're giving yeah. great convenience, but that's not great value. That's convenience. That just makes me lazy. That's not, that's not, not you know, they're, they're charging fair numbers and we're all willing participants and I'm a capitalist. I'm not, I'm, but I think the game that we've lost sight of is that we're supposed to give more than we take out. We've perfected the take. I don't yeah. think any of these companies are taking more than they're giving. I'm just saying that I think if we focus more on the give, you'd actually get more on the back end. A lot easier. That's the maximizing shareholder value, right? That's maximizing take. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And and make no mistake, like I've, I've got uh, a guy that I am privileged enough to call a friend who uh, he's a master simplifier. He's a brilliant systems guy. He's just phenomenal, phenomenal. And he just is, uh, he doesn't say it explicitly like this. He demonstrates it in his life. And then I'm still trying to learn his wisdom per syllables just off the charts. I, you know, I'm still learning as much as I can from him, but he's a great, great reminder for me that growth is, can be measured not only in capacity, which is what we focus on, but what he reminds me of is competency should come right along with capacity. And I think in general, is, I'm a capitalist and I, like, if I could make a suggestion, it would be is instead of just being obsessed with capacity, that we focus more on competency. And what I would say is, again, I'm a fan of tech. I'm a fan of tech companies. I'm a fan of like making use of what we have. But as it relates directly to sales and marketing, we've gotten so incredibly efficient, not effective, efficient with all this automation that we haven't. So the capacity is off the charts. We have not leveled up the competency. So you might as well not have the capacity. And then, then we're chasing capacity and that further drives down competency and therefore, you're like, I can't review my calls because I'm doing all this dumb work. Like, so we're just like, yeah, we're going to focus completely on competency and capacity will take care of itself. Like, I don't have official close numbers. I have no idea what we closed at point to point. I'll tell you, I don't remember losing any. I mean, I'm sure we did. We, I'm sure we yeah. lost plenty. But like, it was off the charts. Now, we only swung, whatever, a few number of times, but we also only exerted like eight K cows, right? So I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, that ends up being ridiculously profitable, right? It's very, very profitable, very profitable, but competency versus capacity. And we're yeah. obsessed with capacity. We're except, you know, give and take. We just, we just got to get the rest of the equation up. It's not, the equation isn't broken. We've just sort of lost sight on the proportions. Yeah. Yeah. In my opinion. Well, we, uh, that's a great, <laughs> I like the opinion. We've had the conversation at work as we develop, you know, we develop a lot of people and a lot of our best people are the people who've been developed, you know, through our farm system. And there is, and historically has been a lot of hands-on product development 
for clients as you're in the early stages of your career at, at Lockton, where I work, and you're building spreadsheets and models and you know, you just start basically plugging numbers in, but eventually you learn what those numbers mean and you learn why they go there. And with technology now, we can pull, we can get the data dump and it can auto-populate the report. And there's a lot of conversation around how does that make us better in the short-term efficiency, but what impact does that have on the long-term effectiveness and competency? And it's interesting, you know, I don't, I think we're always, it's a balance you're always trying to strike, I think, but it's, I've definitely seen that play out and seen those conversations to validate what you're talking about for sure. And I think this is uh, something that it's unearned wisdom. Like there's a guy, Russell Ackoff, he passed away in the early 2000s. He's one of the grandfathers of systems thinking. I don't know that he's the originator of this, but this is where I stole it. I've got eight restraints I try to live by. One of them, number five is copy off the smartest kid in class. And Russell Ackoff is <laughs> always the smartest kid in class. Uh, I was usually teaching the class at the University of Pennsylvania. So, and if any of this isn't what he said, then it's obviously me not copying correctly. But, but he talks about the content of the mind and, or, you know, sort of the progression of data. So you start off with data and it's just static. And if you process it, then you get some information, right? And each time you process this, it's a little bit more valuable, right? Then we take some information, we process it, we get some knowledge, right? And then we process some knowledge and we get some understanding, right? And then if we process the understanding, then we get some wisdom. And then I'm taking this from somebody else. This isn't Akoff. This is just more a little woo-woo. But if we process the wisdom, then we can actually get a state of being, right? So mm. the, the problem is, is that when we get the spreadsheet <laughs> done for us, is that we quasi-warp to wisdom and we're clueless. <laughs> and so yeah. accidentally we get it right, but we don't know why, right? And wisdom is doing the right thing for the right reason at the right time, right? You know? <laughs> and we were frequently right at point to point, even though we didn't know why, you know what I mean? We had done all this analysis. We had set this plan. We thought this was going to play out. And then we ended up being, we were ended up quote unquote being successful, but not for any of the reasons that we thought, you know? So it's like, it's, it still pays the same, but you didn't earn it. You know what I mean? It's like, well, yeah. yeah. So I think there's something, again, it's, it's, it's a balance between effectiveness and efficiency, but I, I think we lean to the efficiency a little too heavy. Yeah, I think there's the effectiveness part. It, it it's certainly an individual performance. It doesn't work. The people that focus on efficiency get burned in the long run. I mean, the all the greats are all effectiveness people. You go to yeah. any goat, and they're all effective. They weren't efficient, right? They were they were yeah. super effective. But, yeah, that's a great way to think about it. You have another business, Sales Sidekick. Would you pitch that? Since we've been talking so much about sales and and what that is. Yes. So the sort of origin story with that is, is that as a corporate event shipping company, point to point, put on a hard stop in February of 2020. And we got humbled by the folks that we served. I thought we could be helpful from like a system standpoint in trying to deal with all this disruption of like taking all these events virtual and all that. And there was a lot of great people helping them and a lot of great work got done there, but they didn't think that we could be helpful. So there wasn't much for us to talk to them about. So the other network that I have is several hundred, maybe close to a thousand business owners. And so I started talking to them and it first started off with just like, look, my problems or my challenges at point to point are horrific, but they're quite simple. Like, you know, I mean, they're not complicated. It's like, what do you do with zero revenue? That's easy to figure out, hard to look at, easy to figure out, but your problems are super complicated and complex. You get what you pay for, but I'd love to, love to help you. And so we did some 
pro bono consulting and some talked to a bunch of people and think created some value and that led to some things and that was fun. But sort of Q4 of 2020, two different folks both sort of really turning the heat up on us and saying, hey, appreciate you being helpful, appreciate all that. But I'd like to really get more out of you. And I really would like some training in terms of the way that you talk about how your company was organized and how you talk about sales and marketing is wildly different than how I hear most people talk about it. And can you teach us that? And so February, late February, 2021, we launched what we're calling Sales Sidekick. And that's really just to sort of adopt some of the stuff that we've talked about earlier on the podcast. Just really, it's about focusing on creating value in the marketplace for fun and for free. And a huge part of that is you've really got to understand it, I think, better and at a deeper level than I think most people do. I think my experience have to is, understand your market. Yes. You, you mean like like you the skill in your in the job that you have needs to be deeper than most people. Yeah. So here's what happened with a group of the folks that I know. So I know, like I said, a bunch of business owners, the overwhelming majority, just as it is in all numbers, are under 10 million. I know a handful, maybe a hundred or so that are bigger than that, but most of them are in the 10 or under range which is still wildly successful. And the overwhelming trend that I saw with almost all of them, virtually all of them, if I didn't see it, they didn't stay under 10. If I'm not seeing it, they're not going to be under 10 for too long. The ones that are stuck under 10, this is my experience and my opinion. So take it for what it is. But what it looked like to me is they were fantastic technicians or craftspeople. I don't know any plumbers. So I mean that more in a metaphorical than a hard trade. But they were on their business. They were the service delivery of their business. And because they were entrepreneurial and mindset and talented and all that, the business came to them like flies because they were incredible. Because they were creating way more value than they were charging for. They were, they were obeying the, the, the equation that we all know so well. And so then they did what I did, which is then you start delegating the lower level work. And you can get away with that for a while. But pretty soon, you actually have to put a system in place that creates that with little or no effort. And so the folks that I was talking that sort of encouraged us to do this really sort of made it uh, hard for us not to do it. We're in a place where they were phenomenal. And when they were still in front of their business, it was phenomenal. The problem was, is their business had gotten so big, they couldn't be in front of all of it. And they weren't in a place where they could decode what their magic was. Right? Hmm. They didn't know. They were too close to it, right? So as a systems guy and not as a sales guy, I can come in and decode like what that is. And then while we're doing that, we also take a look at the marketplace and then try to get on a path that we can have value creation, hopefully indefinitely. Like we just get on that. We just keep trying to outserve them. So that's, it's called the sales sidekick because they think they have a sales problem because their revenue is stalled. But really it's a little bit more about systems design or business design. And it's not traditional sales. Like we don't ever get to... (laughs) One of our clients is a good guy. He's a great guy, super good dude. We didn't quite have an argument, but like, I'm like, look, man, like incentive comp is not part of our future. <laughs> it's not, I've been a commissioned salesperson. I'm not opposed to it. I'm not saying it won't work. That's not what we're building towards. We're building towards a place where the company itself creates enough value that customers come across the room and they ask us to work for us. Then we service them with little or no lift. And then when a triggering event happens, then we talk to them. We see if we want to convert them from a customer to a client. That's what the game is. It's not for everybody. And I got zero. The track record is very long and incredibly distinguished with traditional sales. I, I'm not going to argue with it. I just don't find any joy in it and I don't have any love for it. 
So uh, it doesn't mean it won't work. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't much yeah. like push-ups, but they work. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. So no, I I'm not out to change the world. I just it wasn't what made us successful. And I think what made us successful is what makes salespeople really successful is on an individual level, they're contributing more than they're taking out, right? Like that's, it's, it's just scaling that is where we get lost. So I get what you're saying. Like if a company is willing to shift the way that they're working, they can sort of build this model out, develop a way to get, to attract customers in a way that's pretty easy to manage and, and onboard and maintain, and then sort of test them out, see where you could maybe develop some added value and, and bring them into an, an enhanced service and make them a client. Mm-hmm. What if you're the individual salesperson, right? So the business is going to keep a traditional sales model, yep. but you buy into the concept of creating massive value, more value, you're giving more than you take. Where does an individual salesperson start to develop this sort of within their own ecosystem so that they can be really effective, even if they're working in a traditional incentive comp sales model? Absolutely. So I think these are sort of the basic steps that we just keep sort of spiraling on in in terms of, how the, I think you can do this indefinitely forever, right? So the first one is, and if they're willing to sort of take this on, they're 85%, if not 100% home on step one, but it's absolutely vital, is they first have to make the transformation that they're going to be what I call the sidekick, right? And I'll just tell you, look, I show up a thousand times better as a sidekick than a superhero. Like no one and their brother wants to talk to me. Like it wasn't a joke when I said I have brazen arrogance. Like I try to be a superhero and like, I can't draw flies. I show up as a sidekick and like, everybody's happy, right? There are people who can be superheroes and God bless them. And that's fantastic for those people do what works. But for me, it's always just been a better strategy to align to something bigger. I think it's actually a better strategy overall, but like everyone should decide for themselves. So if you take the mindset of I'm going to attempt to fit myself to something bigger, then that initial meeting as an individual salesperson working inside somebody else's high incentive comp, you're going to show up with that prospect and you're going to really lean into them to see how you can help them. And your goal is going to be, is did I create value for that person in the meeting, regardless, like for them? And if you do that, you're going to learn because you're going to ask a bunch of questions. And if you create value by giving them a gift, like for free, something that doesn't have anything, it could have something to do with your service or not, doesn't matter. You'll make some friends and you'll be able to stay in conversation with them. And then when you start learning together, it'll become really obvious where what I call the gifts are that you need to be able to systematize. So when someone, when you meet one of those people, you can be like, oh, I have a set of gifts that are valuable. I'm not talking like golf outings and free drinks. I'm talking about, here's a thought model. Here's a, hmm. here's a framework. Here's an interesting article. Here's a strategy, uh, whatever. Here's something that you can use in your life that will provide value for the next 10 years or maybe the rest of your life. Here's an interesting executive summary of a book that I read. I mean, there's things that you can give them, but if you're serving the same community, they're they're going to all be they're going to be of sort of the same flavor, right? So we yeah. de- you develop that sort of bookcase, for lack of a better word, or warehouse of gifts, and these are professional gifts that are thoughtful, that makes you look like you're smart and that you're intelligent, and that most importantly, you saw them as a real person because you did, and all this might sound like we're manipulating, except when you really mean it, you're not manipulating. You're just actually showing up as a human. You know what I mean? Like 
And yeah. so again, like I haven't figured anything out. It's like, oh my gosh, show up, pay attention to them. If you're in the same community and you, you can't in 10 phone calls or 10 meetings, figure out five things that 80% of the people that you're going to run into would be a value that they don't have. You're not listening close enough, right? <laughs> you're just not. And so, yeah. th- so that's sort of on the micro level. Then on the macro level, we do sort of the same thing. We say, okay, look at 10 client companies and what are they trying to do? And what are 10 things? What are the eight things? And that's, it's all about genuine value creation that you can do. And a huge part of it is you're an insider, but you're an outsider to them. So you can provide a perspective or something like that. And entrepreneurs or high-performance salespeople completely take it for granted. So all of those things that you're arguing with your customers about, if you stop arguing with your customers, go to the whiteboard and figure it out, make it a thought model, give it as a gift, and you're done, man. You're done. You're done. And can I just say this? Because I love these abundance people that are all about abundance. And then, then you got to pay them to get the abundance. Like, give it away for free. <laughs> get, don't hide it. I want everyone to become a sidekick. And we're hoping people refer to themselves as sidekick companies. And we might trademark it, not because I want the credit for it, but just so somebody else can't take the credit for it, right? Like, yeah. So it, it just give the stuff away for free. Give it away for free. Virtually every single presentation that I made or that anybody at Point to Point made in a quote-unquote selling situation Somewhere along the way, somewhere we said something along the lines of, we're going to give you what we think is the right solution for your environment. And it's not, we're not delusional enough to think that we're the only people that can execute it, but we're going to put this in a way so you fully understand why this needs to happen. And by the end of this presentation, if you wanted to, you could actually do what we're suggesting. And we're going to hope that because we've suggested it and we brought you up to speed that you're going to ask us to do it. But at the end of the day, if you're not going to, we still want you to do it the right way. And this is just the best way to organize the work. And people would yeah. look at you like, what? like, of course, what good is the blueprint to us if you're not going to hire us? Right? You might as well do yeah. it. And that's abundance thinking. And when you do that, people freak out because they're so used to everyone being like, you got to pay me. You got to like, look, and the people there will be a handful of people that take advantage of you because that's the way the world is. They will quickly uncover who they are. And then you just politely exit them by either raising your prices so high or, you know, I mean, there's, you don't ever tell them, you don't have to yell or scream at them. There's ways that you can make them not call you and still be their friend. Right. But the overwhelming majority of people are going to be like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing because we can hear authenticity. We can hear that stuff. We can see it. We can sense it. And they don't want to do the work. That's why it's not a core competency. If they actually wanted to do what we were offering, if I wanted to do your job, I would never hire you to do it. I would just do it myself. God help us all. I'd be broke. But, but I mean, like that's, but that's really what has the mindset has to be. I think is create those gifts by talking and really listening and learning with them, and then learn on the larger level. And then it's not that you have an off-the-shelf solution, but your solution really should be fairly macro. And then it's just about who actually wants that because there's a lot of different ways the marketplace can be successful, right? And then if they want to do it the way that we think we can be successful, then are we the people to help you? But that's super scary, right? Because we're not in control. It just ends up being ridiculously effective and even more profitable because you don't have to go out and crack 
goals and dial for dollars and do all that other stuff. It's a thousand times more effective. If you're doing any kind of sales or business growth and you think you're in control, you're, that's your ego talking to you because you are not in control. You can do your best, mm-hmm. but the customer is in control. Absolutely. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. There's no question. Let, let me ask you this because I got my own thoughts around this yeah. too. It's funny hearing you say some of the stuff because you and I apparently think similarly in a number of ways, but I've, I've picked, learned a lot from this conversation. How do you define value? You say like, go create value. How do you define value? What's value? So, for me, I think value is it's measured in the other person's terms, right? It's not mine. It's measured in their terms. And ultimately, do we really know? No, because they could still lie to us. I mean, we could ask them, but they're nice, so they lie to us, right? But when we look ourselves in the mirror, and we have that constructive review and we hold ourselves to high integrity and high accountability. If we're like, look, we don't think they would have figured that out without us, that's value. Or if we compress time, we accelerated their learning around it, then I think that's value. I was just going to say it's being fairly certain. And I say fairly certain because you don't, that's super arrogant to say like, there's no way they would have figured it out or they didn't already know it or whatever, or it is a value to them. But with some level of integrity that you can say, look, because of us, they're in a better spot. It might only be two inches better, but that's still better. I mean, could you imagine if every single business interaction you had, you ended up two inches better? Like that'd be phenomenal. How many meetings... I don't even want to ask how many meetings I've been in where I was the guy running the meeting where we, we didn't create any value. So like, it sounds sort of trite or trivial, but that's I think you've done incredible service to that other person if that's, quote unquote, all you've done is just slightly improve their life, right? Well, yeah. so there, I want to latch on to yeah. what you just yeah. said, slightly improve their life. Does it have to be business related or does it oh, have God to be no. related to your yeah. subject matter? Just so, anything that they find value. Yeah. So thank you for pointing that out. I mean, I want to show up as a human first, right? So I think, so I'll, I'll give you a silly example how we did this at point to point. So it was probably April, May of 2020. We sent out uh, children's exercises to our clients. So they had That's something great. to distract their, their children with. And then we actually hosted a Zoom call for their kids, right? Yeah, because it's like, hey, if you want to go have a glass of wine and stare at the wall, we have about 90 minutes of entertainment, which was really like four hours of entertainment just because we weren't sure how things were going to go. And there was five people that led that. That was absolutely fantastic. But that's creating value. That's showing up as a person, understanding what they're up against and where you can create value. Right? Yeah. I was amazed that more people didn't take us up on it. Brilliant. If you have a few more minutes, I know we're already over time here, but I have got two more questions for you. Sure. Number one, as we wrap up, you said you have eight tenants you live by and you gave us number five. Would you be willing to share the others? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So I call them restraints. They fit into the overall framework that we do at Sales Sidekick. But so restraint number one is be nice to yourself. And that's not like I'm wonderful. Be nice to yourself is tell yourself the brutal truth. So for me, that means I'm going to try to accept the largest percentage of reality I can at any given moment. And that's different from <laughs> depending on where we just came from. But I'm trying to take the biggest part I can. I think that's the way I can be nicest to myself. That puts me in the best position to be successful. Restraint number two is if you're bored, you're boring, which just means like it's, it's 100% my job. It's my job to bring excitement. It's my job. All of life is a choice. Restraint number three, and this one's a little out there, so I apologize if I offend anybody, but like it's, I'm not selling them. These are just what helps me show up. So I think work is the single most honorable act in the universe. 
Like I, love is awesome, but it's not much of an accomplishment. I mean, I love my family. I have a beautiful wife. I have two young boys. Like I love them, but there's not much accomplishment. That's like a gift of the universe. Work to me is when I set myself aside and I serve somebody else. And frequently that's hard and that's a real effort. And that to me is honorable. Like thinking that Drew and Connor, my two little boys are the cutest, most adorable thing. Like that's cute, but it's not, you know, it's not. So I'm not down on love. Love is awesome, but work is super honorable, right? So uh, number four is we're playing chess, not checkers. Everyone, I should say a lot of life. When we get into efficiency, right? It's all about transactional. In fairness, it's not chess. It's probably multidimensional chess nested inside multidimensional chess wrapped in a big multidimensional chess game. But so that's that's number four. We're talking about number five, copy off the smartest kid in class. So that's just to remind me to have some professional humility that can frequently change mid-sentence, right? It, it can move around. And, and the big part is, is I don't have to figure this out. Chances are somebody way smarter, way more thoughtful with more experience with more thoroughness, with more follow through, has already figured this out. Who are they? How can I go honorably copy off of them and then just do what they do? And when that doesn't work, I can't, I, I'm sure there's been one time or two times where it hasn't worked. The overwhelming majority of the time when it hasn't worked, when I've looked closer at what I did, I wasn't following the directions properly. Right? Like it's just <laughs> copy off the smartest kid in class is awesome. Number six is don't push. The universe is 100% pull. It's a hundred percent pull. There's no push in the universe. It's all pull, right? So I, I can push. You got a little sense. I get passionate when I get animated. So I got to watch on that one. Number seven. So I keep saying my opinions. So my opinions don't matter outside my own head. Like they matter inside my head, not that much, but a little bit. And this doesn't mean this, this is some low self-esteem or some false humility claim. This is just a really big reminder that my opinion has already been factored into the system that I call the universe. Like it's already been accounted for. It's like, thanks, Dan, already factored it in. We don't need any more input, <laughs> you know, like, right? So, so that's, uh, that's that. Number eight is you can always add one. Like think of the biggest number, add one, do that again. You could do that forever. So, uh, and in that spirit, there's a bonus restraint. So restraint number five, there's eight, but there's a bonus. So number, number nine is mistakes at full speed. So the mistakes are built into the process. So full speed isn't as fast as I can go. It's the appropriate speed based on resources and all that. So by me going full speed, I can just sort of maximize learning. Going slower for me, if I'm not going full speed, just means I'm going to slow down the learning. The idea that if I sort of wait or go slow, I'm going to make less mistakes is comical. I'm just going to slow down learning or prevent learning altogether. That's the eight plus one restraint. Did you create those yourself or did you copy those off the smartest person in the room? Well. Sort of yes is the answer. So those I did not borrow those directly from anyone, but those are there's not one original idea in what I just shared. So those sure. are my original words, but somebody else's original concepts. And folks that have worked with me over the years, we used to call them Dan's rules, and that's a little strong. And actually, restraints fits into that framework that I mentioned before. So so um, these are some of the restraints. And so I link I use them as restraints because with this craziness that I have, it's best to keep it on the rails. So this is really to either drive thought or actions into better actions or better thoughts. Yeah. That's how I use Brilliant. it. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. I can't wait to go back and listen to what you just <laughs> said again, because I, I think I got this much of it in real time and yeah. I can't wait to go back yeah. and, and listen to that yeah. again. Awesome. Last question. And this is the one that I ask at the end. And I think you've been sort of dancing around it, but I'm going to ask it right now. What in your mind is the purpose of business? So I think the purpose of business 
is to accomplish what we couldn't accomplish by ourselves. I mean, you can say it's creating value and all that other stuff, but I mean, to me, business should be about aligning systems to create more valuable byproducts. And byproducts is a nice way of saying waste. So I think the purpose of business is to create such efficiencies and such effectiveness that the waste is more valuable, right? The byproducts are more valuable. And I think we haven't done an awful job, but because of all this effectiveness and because of all this scale and because of all this, we just, we're really starting to feel the disproportionate. Yeah. Um, again, these companies are incredible. I'm not trying to take a shot at them. I mean, and I'm a huge, huge pro business guy, but what would they look like if they focused 2% more on just contributing value in the ways that we talked about or in the ways that you and your coworkers contribute to the people that you serve? What would that look like? And I'm not taking, yeah. I mean, the, the, the nonprofit stuff and the donations and all that stuff, that's fine. But what if they baked it into their system that their workers did it all the time? Not just that they wrote a separate check. That's incredibly generous and gracious of them. And I'm grateful that they do that stuff. I'm involved with nonprofit work and it's fantastic when they help us out, right? But I'm talking about building it into the day-to-day business. Make the work yeah. itself more redeemable. That's my rant. That. No, I love that. And, and to do things that we can't do on our own, This is probably interview number 60-ish that I've done for this podcast, and that is a wholly unique answer. So I love that. That's a great perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, I hardly believe that an hour went by, but that was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you sharing. I got a ton out of this, and I'm going to go back and upgrade. I'm going to add one in a couple different areas to what I do and, and how I spend my time and think. So I really appreciate you sharing, and I hope and believe that everybody who listened to this will get something out of it too. Well, I appreciate the the platform and looking forward to uh, continuing conversation. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.